Hi everyone, I'm Michael O'Hearn, a pensions partner at Herbert Smith Free Hills, and welcome to our latest podcast in our series on pensions in ESG. Uh, following on from our previous podcast with Emma Douglas, head of DC at Elgin, and Caroline Escott, senior investment manager at RPMI Railpen. Today, I'm delighted to say that I've been joined by Professor Ian Clatcher, who is the current Pro Dean for International at Leeds University and Professor of Pensions and Finance. Ian is currently leading on climate and environmental risk analytics for pension and asset management for the newly established 10 million pound UK Centre for Green Finance and Investment. Ian's recent work has looked at issues such as pension fund risk management, mutual fund performance, costs and fees in asset management, and trustee decision making and behavioural biases. Ian, welcome to the pod. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to this. Not at all. So I thought we'd start off with, could you just tell us a little bit about your your background and your research background and, and why you focused on sort of pensions, retirement saving, and more recently, sort of trustee decision-making? So it all comes back to my PhD. So actually, I've been looking at pensions now for 15 or so years. And one of the things that I really like about pensions is it's so deep as a topic. So it's one word, but it covers actuarial science, economics, it covers behavioural finance, whether that's looking at trustee boards or individuals making choices around pension products and things like that, as well as asset management. And then there's obviously a huge legal aspect to all of this too, but I've I've steered away from that thus far. It's not my domain expertise. Well, I'm I'm glad because um, it leaves it leaves some work for the rest of us. So, uh, but um, so what about what what's this green finance investment and, and and what does it hope to achieve? So, the the sort of centre itself, the aim of the centre is to essentially become a trusted source of data and analytics across all aspects of finance. One of them being uh, pensions and asset management. So with the, the sort of move towards embedding climate decision making, that requires good data and good models. And it's really hard for many people within financial services to start to say, well, this data is good for this purpose. It is not good for that purpose. This model can tell me this information, but not that information. And so the idea of having sort of transparency in data, open data, transparency in models and open models and standards around these things means that there's a base level of knowledge which can then be used across the the sort of broader financial services industry. Now, with that, there's another ambition, which is around the development of climate and environmental risk analytics providers into finance. So as we build the centre out, then we will be able to showcase where there is a demand for analytics or where there is a gap in data and what that gap looks like and how it could be filled. And then people can essentially build businesses off of this and start to commercialise it and provide a a service which I think is quite needed uh, when it comes to really specialist areas of this. So in a sense, a kind of a quality mark 
a mark of, of, of quality that the, the industry can rely on. So does it have a sort of, you know, centre for green finance investment kite mark? And and then, you know, basically promoting innovation. Is that is that is that about right? And that that's a kind of government, it's government backed. That's what the government wants to do. It doesn't want to be in the market itself, but promote. Yeah, so I mean, we don't want to. We would. We do. We do not want to be the market. We want to facilitate its growth, and we want to help with other things like training and development, because actually this is an area that's highly specialist, highly technical, and in many parts of financial services, there's a real need for capacity building. Yeah, yeah, and we'll we'll come on because I'm I'm really interested in the sort of uh, the trustee side of this which is you know obviously trustees are now being told they need to understand this you need to understand you not only need to understand the sort of theory in and around climate change or environmental risks and opportunities and investments uh, but you also need to be effectively measuring it and monitoring and, and managing those risks but before we do i mean where do you i the sense I get in the market at the moment is that work around equities, sort of climate change and equities and sort of TCFD and, and those kind of things, mm-hmm. it is is relatively, I'm going to say advanced in comparison to, to some of the other asset classes, whether it's private equity or debt or, or what it is. Is that is that right? Um, or is it the case that yes? equities might be a little bit far along but actually we're only just at the tip of the iceberg of this i mean i guess what i'm where do you see the initial wins or the initial areas where you will see innovation in the market and where do we think innovation is really needed so for me i think sort of things that are listed are easier to do and that's in a spectrum of things that are very hard to do so it goes from hard to much harder. But I think sort of listed market things are going to sort of not quite take care of themselves, but you can see the direction of travel from accounting disclosures, from different sort of regulatory bodies. You're going to have possibly stock exchanges around the world starting to push TCFD and things like that. And so I think to some extent you're going to see a relatively quick iteration towards something which is workable it will not be perfect and so it's the start of a journey but i think you will that's where you're going to see this the horrible phrase low-hanging fruit yeah i think that's what that i think i'm quite comfortable saying that about listed where it becomes harder is once you go into unlisted because the data is not there and the, the the access to the data what is the assets that are held and by assets i mean if you have a private company that's global where is it because it's based yeah. somewhere but it will have other bits of its business all over the world and to get a picture of that business is is much harder because it's it's less visible because it is privately held again when you've got things that could be sitting in uh some sort of wrapper so you might have a a pooled fixed income sort of yeah. 
fund, then what under what the underlines of that is, it might all be private credit of some description, but what is actually underlying that, it's very hard once you've got different layers to that to then think about, well, do I actually have something which is funding uh, a new coal mine somewhere in the world, but I don't understand that because of the, the, the layers in that investment. So I think you've got aspects like that, and I think these are the things that are much, much harder to do. Yeah, and one of the, I know you've done um, separate work, not on this, but in relation to sort of pooled funds. I think one of the challenges that I, I'm hearing, particularly from um, trustees of, of DC schemes, and obviously you've got the master trusts as well mm. now, is, you know, the how how do you gather this information from, from those pooled, pooled funds that are provided by sort of, Elgin and the larger insurers um is that going to I, I, I guess the what you're doing is going to be and going to necessarily have to link up with the work the FCA is doing the the PRA and the yeah. um uh, accounting standards boards and, and those kind of things is it just is it is it a question of just regulation so I, I don't think Reg, I would be surprised if it needs regulation because, by and large, I would suggest that asset management's on a journey too. So it's not just about asset owners. And yeah. so I think when you look at a lot of the larger asset managers, they are moving towards these types of solutions. I think where it becomes more challenging is when you've gone into things that are somewhat more esoteric and smaller. And it's so it's not necessarily a large part of your investment portfolio, but it still could be four or five percent. That's yeah. that's not the, the dominant sort of investments. But if you need to understand the risks in your portfolio, some of them could actually sit in these much smaller tranches. And so I think the large listed equity thing, the large listed uh, public uh, fixed income stuff, that sort of comes first, and then you start to get into things where it is your larger so it's, it's always a problem of scale and complexity but i do think look through on a lot of these products is going to be really important and i, th I would expect that your larger asset managers are going to see that transparency as a competitive advantage and move first and with that you would then see the rest of the market start to move towards it because it becomes expected by the asset owner that these are the kind of things that i can see and I guess that that's that's where you come in on the steer because I think one of the one of the concerns is um, in the industry that I've heard at least is you're absolutely right asset managers are going to start seeing this as a competitive advantage and they'll sell their way of doing this and as you've already said it's a spectrum of hard right mm -hmm. you've got to make a lot of assumptions um, and I get I guess I recently spoke to an asset manager that um uh, was just the the product was just collating um the data that's been provided by um uh, the sort of the underlying data providers and it, it gave an impression of making an objective judgment whereas yeah. when we got when we asked them about the underlying data there are subjective choices that are being made about for example when it comes to guilt or sovereign sovereign debt you know people are making kind of subjective assumptions and i guess that's where the center 
may come in that you can you're establishing quality controls around that and and do, do you think do you think that's true actually that there are subjective decisions being made about how to categorize and quantify this data or, or and does it need to move more to an objective sort of standardized framework so the in all of these things there are going to be subjective decisions that are made but how those decisions are made what they mean and what what the implications of the, the those decisions are is extremely important so in a sort of naive way um let's say we can do carbon, we can measure carbon and we can get a good estimate of scope one, scope two, scope three. That means, you know, what the carbon production of your portfolio is. That then leads to a question of what do you do about it? So is it divestment, which doesn't change the gross output of carbon because you've just moved it somewhere else, somebody else now owns it, or is it engagement? And so I think that's a sort of really tough decision um, because from a trustee point of view, you're then saying, well, we are holding this company and we know it's in an industry which is polluting, but actually we've got a really good level of engagement and we can see that they've got a plan to really change their business. And so we think that we should be there holding this because actually if they do that, it will be a good investment. It's very hard to measure that. So it's, it's one thing yeah. to say, it's another thing to do. So these are some of the really difficult challenges because it's not just about the climate side, it's about what you do. You then get things like transition risk. So what is my path to net zero by 2050? What is that risk and what do I do about it? And do I achieve the right targets by 2050? And again, all of these things are going to be subject to quite a lot of assumption and it's highly likely that if you change your assumptions, you will get to a different outcome. And so my worry around something like that is if there is no sort of standard around data and methods and all these kind of things, then actually everybody could think that they're in the right path. But actually yeah. nobody's on the right path and nothing changes. So there's a there's a real risk that somebody could come along and not maliciously, I mean very well meaningly, turn around and say, Yeah, you guys are looking great for twenty fifty net zero, you you're good. And actually they're not because there's something within the black box model or the non transparent data or some of those assumptions aren't being kicked. And I think this is where you need the advisory community. And you're starting to see it come through again to be able to say, well, actually, you need to tell us more about this model and we need to understand these factors in particular. And so they help and support the trustees to really be able to understand the decisions that they have to be making around this because they're extremely difficult because you're now going out essentially for most DB schemes, for example, over the life of the runoff of the DB scheme next yeah. 30 years. And so those decisions today are really important. And what we don't want is to have a lost decade, essentially, because if you've got, and by that I mean you've got a lost decade where everybody's doing some analytics, everybody's using some data sets, and we iterate towards a solution. Yeah. And, and by, what are we today? So by 2031, we've now got standardization. That lost decade means too much carbon, 
not the right reallocation of capital, potentially the capital that is required to fund the transition to green not being allocated to new investments and innovations. And so a, a decade is a long time to lose in this. And so we need to make sure that that standardisation and transparency happens quicker and that the people who sit within the, the, the sort of investment chain are able to then really help trustees and asset owners make good decisions based upon the best available science we have today, which doesn't mean it's the right science because this yeah. is going to change through time. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I, was, I wanted to touch on sort of what you think the key challenges trustees face in measuring and managing these climate related risks. And we've talked about it there. It's interesting the point that you make because there's this, the term greenwashing, which is sort of being bandied around. And I think it, it it's it's used clearly in a pejorative sense. And I think some people use it as a pseudonym for, for mis-selling, quite mm. frankly. I, I But the point you've made there is a, is a really good one and a really important one, which is it might, you know, what we define as greenwashing, it might not be malicious at all. It just might be um, someone's set of assumptions that might actually be misleading, not through, but through this desire to get either a competitive advantage or do the right thing, whatever it is. And it is that, it's that robustness around that. And um, do you think that's fair? And what, and what other sort of key challenges do you see for trustees sort of sitting down and trying to understand understand this as a sort of um, basically starting from scratch as it were yeah so I mean greenwashing is a very real thing so I think if you look at the the, the very broad bucket of ESG and if you look at the flows towards ESG money in the past 12 18 months and so on not all of that can really not all of it can tick the box of being ESG. So there is a lot of that going on. And I think we have to differentiate that, though, from the idea that the questions that are now being asked are extremely difficult and there will be people who enter the market and they are well-meaning. But there is something in the data, the assumptions of their models, which people aren't in a position to robustly critique yeah. And I've got and I've got this thing about um, essentially if you take the sort of level of the, the threshold that's required for an elite journal publication in climate science such as Nature or Nature Climate Change, that threshold is probably probably commercially not suitable. Yeah. So it tells you something really important. So I think I've always had this thing that what we need to try and do is raise the bar in industry towards that sort of gold standard in academia, but actually push the standards down from academia for journal publication into something which is actionable and practical. And that's quite, a, that's quite a, a, I think that's a different way of looking at it. So you're trying to make something commercially viable and suitable for decision making in the real world caveated with all the things that always go on in the real world, whilst also pushing up the standards that we see in industry so that people have more confidence in the data, the measures and the models. And actually, if you if you are confident in your data and your measures and your models, why is it a black box? Yeah. It sh you should, it's not to say you let the whole world see it, but there's no reason why you shouldn't be having somebody on behalf of a, a trustee board, really get into the detail 
and say, right, let's sit down and go through this. Because if your model's good, your model's good. And so there's things that can be done to help raise that standard and also make sure that the science and the cutting edge science is translatable into something that's practical, practically actionable. Now, the other thing with regards to the, the trustees and what they've got to do is a lot of the discussion just now focuses on carbon exposure or yeah. scope one, two and three. There's then some discussion about transition but you've then actually got a really big issue which isn't really discussed which is physical and so where physical risk has been done much better is in insurance because in insurance physical risk and the the effects of climate change are hitting and have been hitting for quite a long time well mark Mark carney famously sort of kicked off his 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 speech at the sort of lloyds of london that was the yeah yeah. because so in insurance you've seen that pressing need to deal with this but insurers are more or less only looking 12 years 12 years 12 months out whereas a pension fund's got to try and peer into the mists of time and look out 30 years so i think there's a lot that can be learned from the insurance industry in this regard in terms of open transparent and standardization oasis hub is one one area where that's been done very well in insurance um, so th- there are these kind of transparent, open things that exist, and that's what we want the centre to be able to bring to other bits of finance, essentially, because it's so important, because we don't have 10, 15 years to get this right. We need to be accelerating this yeah. so that that standardisation's there. But with that, trustees and what's expected of trustees and all other bits of finance is going to have to move beyond carbon. And it's going to have to start to look at things like um, compounding and cascading risks. So how do weather events and floods interact, for example, and what could that mean for some critical infrastructure you hold or for some property that you hold? So you might have a big investment in coastal hotels. You're probably going to want to start to think about your physical risk, depending on where those coastal hotels are, Mm. because actually, the right sort of climate scenario would suggest that that could be a, an at-risk investment. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I just wanted if you if you is this so we talk about this acceleration. We don't have ten years to get this right. So we mm. we can we can piggyback off ex- existing platforms and existing technologies that we're talking about with insurance and 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 basically the centre can can try and act as a, a sort of magnet for good ideas and sort of good sharing and quality. But is the, in your view is the impetus for this? Does it have to be? I guess it's an all. It, I guess the answer is everybody. But we're obviously in the run up to COP26. There's going to be a lot of government focus on this, and we've yeah. we've just had to to a big fanfare the draft regulations for TCFD for pension schemes. And I guess yeah. one of your points there might be yes, TCFD is great, but it does focus on carbon, and it does focus on that. Is is this effort going to be? Who's going to lead the charge? Who's going to make that real difference? It's it's not going to be government because they don't want to be in the market. They're going to add incentives and stuff like that. Is is it going to be the asset managers or is it going to be the asset owners? Is it is it going to be the pension trustees and the the insurers? It, where where do you think the real impetus for this for this will come from? 
It's going to come from asset owners because the regulation is going to make them do it. You have to do it. The government's telling you you have to do it. It's important. And I would look at the DWP TCFD work as a starting point. It's not an end point. Yeah. And if you look at the the sort of staged process they have for that, where you have um, schemes of five billion plus followed by schemes of a billion plus, and then at some point you get to sub a billion schemes, this is going to affect all pension schemes, and it's really important that it does. If you look in the world of DB, um, then you probably get, I don't know, what, 80% of assets at a billion plus schemes. But in that other 20 billion, there are another 5,000 trustee boards. And it's not that that money is going to make a huge difference to climate per se, when you think about the, the sort of scale of the money that sits in the larger schemes. But in each of those pension schemes, there's a board of trustees who are managing money, and that money is there to pay somebody's pension. If they don't get this right in the same way as the large schemes, then that is potentially somebody's pension who's not been paid. And it's potentially schemes ending up um, in PPF and things like that, because ultimately the the stranding of particular parts of their portfolio is so um, incrementally large relative to the sponsor that the sponsor can no longer support the scheme. And so starting out at the top end and then making doing all the hard work there and making it easier and easier in learning as we go down, I think is really important. And so at any one point in time, I would hope that you would see, let's do carbon at the larger end and start to push that down. Let's do transition at the larger end and start to push that down. Let's do physical at the larger end and start to push that down. And when you speak to large schemes, they're thinking about all three so they're already starting to think about these things, and some of them are even starting to think about nature-related financial disclosures, which is obviously going to come later mm. as well, because the climate bit and the nature bit interact in quite a, an important way. Mm. And that idea of a bounded planet for economic growth, I think, is now really starting to resonate with people, and people are realising that what has gone on for the past 200 years is not probably going to work for the next 200, but you're then left with the staggering question, what does the next 50 look like? Yeah, yeah, in terms People of staying right next. With that. I, think, I think the point you've, you made there about ultimately, for me at least, and I know your work concentrates on this, it's about, about member outcomes. What yeah. we, what a pension scheme ultimately is there to do is to secure the retirement of its on its beneficiaries and its members. And, and for me, the the argument can be made just on the the, the basic legal fiduciary duties of, of trustees. And and it, it's great that we're getting this framework for TCFT and carbon. And I'm sure more will come down the line. But I I do think there are the strong arguments there. Um, for trustees just to be doing this on their basic legal duties. Now, there's then questions about, um, uh, you know, should trustees be paying a premium for, say, green gilts, green bonds? Should be, should you be paying a greenium? Is that within your, you know, are you tiptoeing over the line into making kind of moral type judgments yeah. and things like that? And there's, yeah. there's a bit of, a, but I, I think that, I think that's on the edge of this. 
and I think that's quite quite extreme. I, and I, I think I think to be honest, some of those greeniums will not look so greenium in sort of a couple of years' time. But um, I, I do think I think we can worry about that. But I think the the core fiduciary duty to, to at the very very least understand this and start taking action to the extent you are exposed um, is 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 fundamental. And yeah, I, I agree. Um, if you were a if you were a sort of well, if you were a trustee or advising a trustee, what 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 would your advice be? For example, if a trustee came to you and said, "Ian, listen, I've just been appointed member nominated trustee of this this pension scheme, half a billion, whatever. Um, I want to understand this stuff. Um, I want to understand climate related risks. Where do I start?" Um, I would suggest you read TCFD, the full thing. And don't panic when you don't understand it, because this is complicated, it's new and different. But I think that's a really interesting read, and I think it's a really good starting point for trying to understand what's going to, the objective is, what is it people are trying to achieve? Because I think when you can see what it is that people are trying to achieve, it then allows you to think about, well, where do I sit in that, and how do I then contribute to it? And so... If a trustee had zero knowledge, just trying to then think about, okay, scope one, scope two, scope three. As a very basic way, that's, I think, really important and starting to get these core concepts around. This builds and grows. As I spend more time in it, I become ever more fascinated by it and there are layers and layers and layers to it. Now, that's not practical, but I started out at TCFD. Yeah. I think that's a really good document for trustees to it should be mandatory reading essentially for to go into a university context well it may it may well be uh depending on how the pension regulator updates its uh trustee toolkit but um yeah. well that's the other bit that needs to happen actually is the the training needs to be there and the support needs to be there from uh the regulator yeah i, I just it, it just on that actually are you going to are you involved at all with 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 the quality marks over training and those kind of things, or is that not something that the centre looks at? No, it's not something we've, we've, we've started to explore in any real way. So one of the things that we would like to do and we will do within the centre, but we've got to work this out, because again, it's not just pensions and asset management, it's much broader, mm-hmm. is what sort of training and capacity building will the centre provide? Because it's really important that we think about what training do we need for trusteeship, for example, and potentially as other areas where we could contribute. So one of the things that's really quite interesting just now is the UK Green Investment Bank, and that's based in Leeds. Mm-hmm. And that's a completely different sort of part of this, essentially. But the the statement is very clear again from government about investment in critical green infrastructure. Now, some of that's going to be uh, potentially very closely related to local government. So it may well be that there's training and capacity building that's required at local government in relation to some of these things. But regardless, there may well be training and capacity building that's required there simply because cities have to decarbonise, cities have to become net zero cities. And you can see a lot of activity in the UK and globally on this. And so again, there's a huge 
upskilling of people in general that is required. It's not just in finance. So these are all things that the centre is going to contribute to. That's great. Um, we're almost at the end because I'm mindful of time. But I just wanted to ask you, where do you, where do you hope we, the, the centre will be, say, in sort of two to three years' time? What would you, if you had this sort of magic wand, you say that's the one thing that I'd really want to happen? So the centre will be a, no, a well-known, well-regarded and trusted repository for all of these things. It will be where you go when you want to ask the question, so how do I do this? Yeah. I think that's really important. So one of the things about it sitting in universities is we've, we've got no skin in the game in this. And so we will be able to build those kind of things that I've said about open data, open models, and then building those use cases out because we're collaborating across the consortium with industry. So this isn't built by academics for academics. This has been built with a, an end user in mind. And the next bit that comes from that is we will also then be able to accelerate new data and new science into financial services because we have that position so actually the, the data and analysis that you see today will, will at some point be superseded by new science, new insight, new data, new analytics, and we can help bring that to the, the financial system. That's fantastic. I, I, absolutely best of luck to you. I think it's incredibly important work and that's brilliant. Um, well, that, that brings us... That brings us to the end of today's podcast. Many thanks to Ian, uh, and we hope you enjoyed listening. Uh, of course, if you want to join us for any other uh, episodes, uh, you can subscribe via the Herbert Smith Freehills channel on Spotify, iTunes, or SoundCloud. If you've got any questions or feedback, please don't hesitate to get in touch with one of your usual HSF contacts. Ian, thank you so much for the conversation. It's been lovely to talk to you. No, thank you for having me. It's been great.